You are listening to PG Radio, broadcasting from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Welcome to Psychoanal Literature, a podcast about psychoanalysis, literature, and all that lies in between. Each episode, we deliver an interview with a prominent culture of figure who brings psychoanalysis to bear in contemporary culture to find out why they think psychoanalysis matters today. I'm Dr. Yael Segalowitz. And I am Professor Amelaine Maschilein. Join us. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are very excited to have with us Emma Lieber, who is a full-time analyst, but also a part-time lecturer at the New School, and who has just written a very exciting book called The Writing Cure, which we will talk about. But she also has another book out on the queerness of childhood. So, Emma, welcome. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. Emma, our first question is always, why psychoanalysis now? And the idea is, do you feel that psychoanalysis is resurging? And do you also have an idea of why this way of being and of thinking in the world would be specifically topical to the current moment that we are in? Or do you feel that psychoanalysis has just never been away and, and that it is just as present as it was before? You know, it's, it's interesting because as an analyst, I think you kind of always feel irrelevant <laughs> or maybe now, I'm not sure. You know, not many people become analysts these days. It's a sort of odd thing to do. And it has receded, obviously, from dominant culture, from the place where it was at various points throughout history. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it takes up different positions vis-a-vis dominant culture. And in terms of where it's getting transmitted from, you know, whether it's being transmitted from the medical field or from the humanities. This is not a culture, the one that we live in, that is terribly interested in the long game. And psychoanalysis is very much the long game. You know, I think that there's a way in which it provides something that people are really thirsting for. And I see this a lot in my teaching, actually. I teach psychoanalysis and literature at the New School to undergraduates. And I've gotten the sense recently, especially in the last few years teaching, that the ways in which psychoanalysis provides a refuge from dominant culture and the ways in which we suffer from dominant culture is something that people, you know, young people maybe in particular, are really, really hungry for. So in a way, there's, I think there's a way in which psychoanalysis is both always irrelevant because it always, <laughs> it always stands against, in some way, dominant culture. And it kind of has to, I think, in order to do its work, stand at the margins of dominant culture and push back to a certain extent against dominant discourses, which are the discourses from which we suffer. You know, at the same time that at certain historical times, it takes on a different place. I mean, you know, I have had the sense that there is a, after a long drought in which the dominant therapy forms were short-term evidence-based CBT, this is what works, this is what we can prove work, you know, with very conventional assumptions about what work means, for example, you know, what the work of therapy is and what efficaciousness is and what evidence, you know, what the status of evidence even is, you know, now, in the last few years, you're seeing a lot more New York Times articles being written about how, oh, actually, maybe CBT doesn't work quite as well. Maybe those studies were not quite as accurate as they seem to be. Maybe psychoanalysis, actually, psychoanalysis is also very evidence-based. You know, we can approach psychoanalysis through the same rubrics of evidence efficaciousness that we do CBT. Of course, I appreciate this, that, you know, if psychoanalysis is coming back into favor, into dominant discourse. But I also think that it's the wrong, it's sort of the wrong question to be asking. It's the wrong angle to approach it from. And I always kind of 
cringe a little bit when, um, you know, I've seen a couple of like lectures by analysts promoting this, like, look, in order to transmit psychoanalysis into the broader culture, which is obviously important, we need to stand for the extent to which psychoanalysis is an evidence-based practice. That seems to me to be the absolute wrongheaded approach. If, you know, if we're going to take psychoanalysis seriously, and we're going to take seriously the psychoanalytic epistemology, which also means to take seriously what psychoanalysis has to offer, we have to put to question our assumptions about what something like evidence is, or what something like change is, or what's required for change. And if we kind of fall into pre-made assumptions and structures that are in and of themselves part of the symptom of dominant culture. I think it's really interesting that you have this really unique position of having your foot both in the therapy and in teaching psychoanalysis as a humanistic discourse. So psychoanalysis is a worldview. So I would like to ask first if psychoanalysis, this big title that we know is actually made up of very different understanding of psychoanalysis, if this psychoanalysis functions differently in therapy and in the humanistic discourse, and also, you know, we talk about evidence as this critique from the sciences, mostly against psychoanalysis. We know that in the humanities, the critique mounted against psychoanalysis was mostly from the position of queer and feminist and ideology. So I don't know if it, that makes sense as one question, mm -hmm. but I was wondering how psychoanalysis functions in your pedagogy, but also your understanding of it as a worldview rather than a practice. Mm -hmm. You know, psychoanalysis is a theory, it's a practice, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's an epistemology, it's a worldview, and I think it always has to be in conversation. You know, I do think its proper home is in the humanities, and I do think that it speaks best from that place. You know, and I find this in my teaching, that to work with psychoanalysis and literature together is precisely where, for me at least, something of psychoanalysis can get transmitted because it's a it's a practice of reading it's a practice of listening and it's a practice of listening and close listening and work with signification and with representation that shifts your position in the universe <laughs> so there's the the kind of the epistemology can't be disarticulated from the practice you know in terms of Psychoanalysis was always relevant. The unconscious was always relevant. Lacan says that Socrates was the first analyst. You know, psychoanalysis was <laughs> there before it was invented, but it was also invented at a very particular moment in culture in the 19th century by Freud, who was a product of his time in many, many ways. I think what's so important about feminist and queer critiques of Freud is the extent to which they take Freud extremely seriously and they take the psychoanalysis extremely seriously and perhaps are the discourses at the moment that are taking psychoanalysis most seriously and subjecting it to its own terms and procedures. So part of the epistemology of psychoanalysis is that the object under investigation always is, is speaking its own symptoms, <laughs> that communication is never constitutive, it's performative, that what is being spoken is being spoken in the form in which it's being spoken. And to take on psychoanalysis rigorously means to take it on psychoanalytically. And that's actually, it's, it's in feminist critiques and it's in queer critiques that that's precisely what's happening where Freud's writing you know, and other psychoanalytic writing are being subjected to precisely the forms of listening um, and rigorous reading. And this I think is where 
you can read a certain kind of generosity in Freud's writing, where to whatever extent he was putting himself on the page, making himself a subject of auto theory, writing in an auto theoretical vein of en la lettre, he, whether knowingly or not, and probably in a lot, <laughs> at many times in a lot of ways unknowingly, was opening himself precisely to this form of critique, which then is what carries forward the psychoanalytic discourse alongside more than as much as whatever the content of what he was saying. Yeah, I, I do want to, to, to take up, of course, this, this idea of, of auto theory and, and the fact that you see also you talk about reading and listening. You also talk about writing and speaking and, and this whole idea that, that writing your book, the writing cure, which is a form of auto theory, is the beginning of your life as a psychoanalyst or a kind of end period maybe of a, of a previous period. You refer a lot to Freud, but you also bring in very different thinkers and do you think that auto theory is perhaps for you the most important element in bringing in these different thinkers or do you think it's it's mainly conceptual because i had the feeling that for you it's really this auto theoretical impulse that drives you it really is you know i this book was written in a moment in my life and in my analysis where you know it felt extremely urgent that something be written and that something be written both for the sake of my analysis and for my formation as an analyst, but also because it seemed very important to me to find a position from which to write as an analyst. I had been writing for a very long time as an academic and also a little bit as, as a creative writer, but it seemed very important to find a new kind of writing position as a kind of self-announcement that this is, the, this is the position I'm now taking on in the social. I'm an analyst, which is a, a very distinctive position in social life, but also because it seemed to me that in order to truly rigorously transmit what psychoanalysis does, you have to write psychoanalytically. And that in order to write psychoanalytically, you have to rethink what writing is. I mean, you know, of course you can write about psychoanalysis under a number of different sort of ready-made headings that, you know, under the heading of scholarship or, you know, or, or, you know, academic work or research or whatever. And that's fine, but that's in a way not psychoanalytic writing. Psychoanalysis demands that we uh, in one way or another, shift our position vis-a-vis -vis representation and vis-a-vis -vis language. And that in order to write ethically, there's a way in which you have to find a new position for yourself. It opened up, you know, an absolutely new world of writing for me. You know, in a way, I think as an analyst, you have to invent new genres for yourself to transmit something of the work of psychoanalysis, that it, you can't function according to received wisdoms or received forms, that there has to be some creative act. At the same time, what one creates is inevitably bound up with what one receives. So that if there's any genre of writing that we can call distinctively psychoanalytic, I think it is auto theory. To the extent that auto theory takes very seriously the notion that lived life and theoretical formations are absolutely bound up in each other. And it performs the way in which psychoanalysis you know, to speak in psychoanalysis, when one speaks in an analysis, you're addressing not another person, right? You're addressing what Lacan calls the big other. You're addressing something else. And in that address to something else, something happens. And there's a way in which the, the status of, let's say, the personal of your, you know, the, the specifics of your life, the, that the dignity of that gets raised <laughs> in a way, in the very form of that address, that it, it becomes whatever the nitty gritty of what you're speaking of, you know, ugh, this thing of, you know, thing with my mother happened again. And it, it takes on a new status in that structure of address. 
And that's something that I think auto theory opens up in the way it interweaves, you know, it, it both makes theory embodied um, and intimate in a way that is extremely important. And it kind of changes the status of the personal. And I, I you know, that's, I think what's it, sort of inherent to psychoanalysis as well. Could you give us a, your definition or understanding of what auto theory is, tentative as it might be? And also, I know we were talking about Freud so far, but it seemed to me Nelson Bechdel, you know, they're really interested very deeply in Winnicott and object relations. So I'm wondering if auto theory you think is related to a different strand of psychoanalysis or for you might start with Freud, as you mentioned in, you know, the writing cure. You know, the, what I always go back to in terms of articulating auto theory is actually a moment in Roland Barthes' um, A Lover's Discourse, which obviously is, you know, Nelson was very influenced by Barthes and where I think it's, you know, very early on or in the, in maybe the preface where he says, this book is a, is a portrait, but it's not a psychological portrait. It's a structural portrait. That I've really taken as a guiding principle in my writing and, you know, in my, I think also in my teaching to the extent that in my teaching, I invite students to bring in the personal in a way that's rigorous in order to evince the notion that to speak of oneself is inherently structural. It's, you know, and I, I like it also because, you know, there's a way, Lacan, who is very important to me, is, is insistently sort of anti-psychological, which means <laughs> many, many things. And so I, I like this quote from Bart, but the notion being that to speak of oneself rigorously is precisely to open up onto structure and onto theory. That, and it does not necessarily have to devolve into the specifics of, or you know, the yeah, the specifics of one's some self-contained individual psychology, but that it it is precisely um, an opening, which then shifts what the status of the personal and what the status of structure is. This interview came at a challenging lockdown week for both Annalene and I, but Emma's thoughtful and calm speech, which allowed her throughout the interview to make smooth transitions, as she does here between Barton and Winnicott, left us with precisely that life force, that sense of planned creativity that she speaks of. You know, in his writing, he kind of opens up a space for play. I mean, it's a very generous writing position that he takes on. And, you know, as also a play therapist and a child analyst, you know, he opens up a space for play that I think is extremely liberating. And it's a very, it's a very homey way of writing. It really, really gives an invitation to take up his work and to take up the space that, that he provides. It can be harder to see that space in someone like Freud or in Lacan, but I think we have to. And I think they're, they're giving, you know, Lacan, especially who, you know, said over and over that he was always speaking from the position of an analysand that if anything, what he was transmitting, you know, on whatever his wild theories or this jargon or these graphs that are sort of impossible to, <laughs> to figure out what's going on. And, you know, everyone is, you know, it's terrifying. You know, what are these people talking about, these Lacanians? But that what he was doing ultimately is he was producing, not so much that he was producing knowledge about subjectivity, but he was producing speech objects. He was producing gifts for his audience to work with and to put themselves to work. And he was um, in one way or another, always transmitting something of his own unconscious life, which performance inevitably is gonna make, set in motion the unconscious lives and work of, and the psychic work of his audience. 
what Winnicott is doing, you, you can see that space being generated by these other thinkers. You just have to maybe work harder. <laughs> and I think Freud is best taken also when, when we take him in that way as well, that rather than communicating some kind of knowledge, he's performing what he's speaking of. And in so doing, he opens a space for us to do the kind of work that he's trying to promote. What kind of students do you teach um, at the new school? Because I, I, I just read a little bit in, in your course description and I was very fascinated by the fact that you also ask them to keep a, a kind of diary of their of their dreams. And can you say a little bit more about this? Like, You know, a lot of them, the, the classes are in the literary studies department at U, Eugene Lang. So they're all undergrads. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are literature majors. Some are coming in from psychology, a lot from the arts. You know, some come in with some background knowledge of an interest and curiosity about psychoanalysis, but I think a lot of them, the impression I get is that they read precisely what you read, that they read in the course description, that there's something about their own dreams that's going to be put, that's going to be at stake in this class. And so a lot of them are coming in because they're curious about their own dream life. And they have some sense that there's, that to work with their own dream life will provide something for them and will provide something for them that they're not going to be getting elsewhere. It has, you know, felt to me very important work to be doing. And so I, you know, at the beginning of every semester, I say, look, this is part of what we're going to do. We're going to be reading psychoanalytic texts. We're going to be reading literary, literary texts in tandem. We're going to be asking questions about what interpretation means for psychoanalysis, what interpretation means for literature, how do we read these two discourses together, how do you read literature psychoanalytically, how do you read psychoanalysis literarily, but the other vector that we're going to be working with is, is your dreams. So how are we going to interweave all of these vectors, psychoanalytic text, literary text, and the text, the text of your dreams, and so I asked them to keep a dream journal, and every um, every class we open up some, you know, we open up with a dream. I say, did anyone dream? And people raise their hand. Some people never do. Some people do it quite frequently. And what it does, you know, I've found it quite remarkable on the base level, because, you know, speaking about your own unconscious life is sort of inherently compelling <laughs> and does something to the, the cohort. It does something new to one's sense of what an academic collective, what a classroom can be. And it seems to in and of itself in the very fact of enacting this procedure, open up new possibilities for teaching. But also because I, I, I think it brings home what essentially I want to bring home by the class, which is that the life of signification that you witness in literature is always at work and it's at work in you. And there is something like a literary genius at work in you. And that's actually the place where you are. What it's meant is that it's shifted a lot my sense of what pedagogy is about. <laughs> that for me at this point to teach literature, to teach nice psychoanalysis, it's, in, it's really not about transmitting some content. It's not about giving students some kind of knowledge base. Those things may happen, but that's not its primary aim. That its primary aim is to awaken something in the student's sort of position vis-a-vis -vis their unconscious lives and set something going for them that then may take them to read more literature, then may take them to read more psychoanalysis, may take them into, into their own analysis, who knows, but that it, it will get something moving. And, you know, I've found also that it does something to the way a group works. So I, you know, I keep going back to um, uh, the last time I taught, which was in the fall. So I was teaching over Zoom, which is inherently, you know, a difficult medium to get conversation going. But it really worked because I found that the students were learning to listen to each other psychoanalytically and they were learning 
to think about how the signifier works in speech. And then we're able to weave that in with what the text, the assigned text for the day was, was doing around questions of gender, the unconscious signification. So, I mean, it, it was really interesting and it, it, it shifted also my sense of where, where dream interpretation, you know, from another angle, where dream interpretation can happen. Because I'm starting to wonder whether it's actually in that kind of collective setting that the kind of really minute work that you can do with a dream that can happen in a consulting room, but it often doesn't, you know, the dreams come up, you work with them to a certain extent, and then you move on. And if you're really pausing too long over the dream, then you're kind of fetishizing the dream, which itself does something to the treatment that could be problematic. But this actually is a, in a way a very appropriate venue for working with dreams in this way. So it, it kind of, it has both shifted my sense of what pedagogy is and what something like dream interpretation is from a psychoanalytic perspective. I want to pull on a thread of one sentence that you just said. You're talking about awakening something in the students and also putting something to work, but you also mentioned um, provoking them into listening analytically or psychoanalytically. And in the book as well, you write really beautifully about this capacity to listen or to hear. I don't know if you differentiate the two, but can you talk about this a little more? You know, there's a way in which something of the materiality of the voice is also, you know, extremely important in psychoanalysis. And, you know, Lacan designated the voice, that the voice is kind of a quintessentially what he called lost object, that it's an object that's inherent to subjectivity precisely in the extent to which it marks the register of loss and of lack in the subjective economy, that we wouldn't speak if we weren't missing something, <laughs> if we weren't in a perpetual state of lack, and also that the voice is something that falls away from the body. It's something that whenever you speak, you're, you're also in a state of loss. You lose your voice as you speak. It, it moves away from you, it leaves. And that the, the status of that always has to be underlined in psychoanalysis. That, you know, that essentially this is what psychoanalysis does is it intervenes at the place where we are perpetually in protest against our own states of lack. And that the analyst is sort of perpetually underlining in one way or another one's lack, one's desire, one's relationship to loss, and that the voice needs to do that. So there's a, there's a way in which the analyst's voice sort of paradoxically both speaks to her presence and speaks to her, but speaks to her presence as absence. And I think that can get, that's something that I try to transmit to students also, that to speak is itself an act and it's an act around absence that gets something done in the very act of speaking. But you started your answer with saying that, you know, obviously psychoanalysis is a practice or art of listening. But in the humanities, we've been taught for years that psychoanalysis is actually, in its essence, an art of interpretation. And there seems to be a change here. I feel that it's, you know, more general. And I was wondering, this is more, I would say, cultural intellectual history, if you feel like this shift from interpretation to listening in our understanding of psychoanalysis, does it mark any change? Or am I amplifying mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's extremely important. You know, again, for, for me, it's Lacan that has helped me a lot because he insistently underlines this aspect where what is an interpretation to psychoanalysis? Is it something explanatory? I, no, not really. I mean, it may be at certain points, but there's a way in which the whatever happens in psychoanalysis is not about conscious understanding, and it's not about ultimately knowledge. I mean, it, it sort of isn't expository in that way. It's that psychoanalysis works because it understands speech as an action, that speech is something that gets something done from both 
sides of the couch. If you're too caught up in some sort of standard or conventional idea of what interpretation is, then something's something's going awry. As I'm listening or as I speak, I'm thinking about how to move something, you know, how to how to put a pressure point on something, how to, you know, it's a it's it's tactile <laughs> in a way. There's something very material about it. It brings up an important question about, you know, how to think psychoanalytic interpretation versus literary interpretation and what it means to come to psychoanalysis from the academy from a position a readerly position which both has been very important to me and was in a lot of ways my entree but was something that actually really had to shift for me as I became an analyst myself and as I as, as I did the work thank you it has been such a pleasure really I want to continue <laughs> I do too we, thank you <laughs> we have to end so it's been wonderful and you really brighten up a very difficult week Thanks. So thank you. Thanks so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this episode on Psychoana Literature. Make sure to subscribe to the show in Spotify, Radio Public, or any of your favorite apps. Thank you to Buzi Raviv for editing this podcast and to Ben Gurion University for making it happen. Tune in next time for another thrilling interview. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Tot de volgende keer. Until next time. <laughs>